This episode of GT the Podcast is supported by Alcon. This is Ike Ahmed. And I'm Arsham Shabani. And we want to welcome you to GT the Podcast. We're bringing this to you together with BMC and Glaucoma Today. To offer audible insights into current topics in glaucoma care. Presented by the authors of our latest, most read GT articles. Check it out. Welcome to the second episode of Survey Says with Dr. Paul Singh, a special edition of GT the Podcast, on which Dr. Singh presents a real patient case from his practice and asks his guests to weigh in on how they would manage it. Today's episode features Dr. Deborah Risvet from Vance Thompson Vision and Dr. Shamik Bafna from Cleveland Eye Clinic. The panel will discuss the case, and later, Dr. Singh will share the Glaucoma Today audience's preferred approach based on the results of a social media poll. How do the polling results match up against the thoughts of today's panelists? Tune in to Survey Says with Paul Singh. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us on GT Podcast. The Survey Says, this is our second edition of the Survey Says Podcast, which is a lot of fun where we kind of poll the audience. We present a case online uh, and different social media platforms, and we get your responses. And then we have a panel of awesome, awesome educators and surgeons here to discuss what you guys all thought out there. And we just have some fun with it. So today I'm really excited to have two really good friends, awesome educators and surgeons and just good people. Uh, first we have Deb Ristvet from Alexandria, Minnesota, Vance Thompson out there. Hey Deb, what's happening? So good to see you, Paul. This is so fun. I'm so pumped to hang out with you guys. This is my favorite part, just to hang out with my friends. I love it. And then we also have from all the way out in Cleveland, Ohio, Shamik Bafna, Cleveland Eye Clinic. What's up, Shamik? Hey, good to see you, Paul. I'm going to get right into the case because we had a really fun case here. It's actually a very simple case in some ways, but also kind of complex. And it was really interesting as we go later on, talk about the results from the audience. But I'm going to present this case to you guys again and for the audience, and then we'll talk about some of the nuances as well. So uh, this is a 52-year-old uh, patient who's uh, had a history of high pressure, recently comes to your office, pressure about 27 or so millimeters of mercury. Uh, patient has a family history of glaucoma, mother, uh, sister has glaucoma. No one lost vision or, or had surgery, but I was on drops and mom's on multiple drops here for the pressures. Uh, good news is she's 52, she's young, but her and her RNFL and her GCC on OCT are healthy and there's no obvious visual field loss, which is a good sign. But she has pretty low pachymetry. Her coronal thicknesses are in the 490s and her hysteresis is around eight and a half. Just for everyone's knowledge there, coronal hysteresis is a, is a machine that measures the kind of the shock absorbing ability of the eye. What's the eye's, to, eye's ability to absorb and disperse energy, kind of like the viscoelastic properties of the cornea, which translates to the entire eye, even the lamina cribosa. And the normal level is about 10 and a half, uh, and she has eight and a half. So she has a low hysteresis. And Felipe Medeiros at Duke has done some fantastic work, which shows us compared to even pachymetry, looking at patients' progression to glaucoma, if they're, let's say, glaucoma suspects, with much higher power predictive value with hysteresis than we do with pachymetry. So this patient has low hysteresis and low pachymetry, family history, uh, with a normal healthy nerve fiber layer and GCC, 0.5 cups, uh, pretty sharp cups, nothing other issues with the nerve with a high pressure on the upper 20s or so. So with that said, uh, Shamik, just in general, when you see a patient who um, has, who's young, like 52, does that worry you or is that, does that change your mindset in general? Yeah, I would definitely say when we're looking at glaucoma, age is always a risk factor, not really a risk factor, but a factor that one needs to consider in a sense that to me, there is no real cure of glaucoma. Basically, 
you're trying to control glaucoma and the aggressiveness of how much you want to control the glaucoma is really dependent upon the patient's age. Meaning that if I see someone for the first time that may be in their 70s, obviously they've got a shorter life expectancy than someone that may be in their 40s or 50s. So I've got a longer time frame that I need to manage that patient's glaucoma and make sure that there is no progression. So definitely in this individual at 52, I would tend to be a little bit more aggressive than someone that may be older than that. Great point. And Deb, to, that, to Sushamik's point, so meaning more aggressive, would you treat this patient like she had glaucoma already? She's technically ocular hypertensive, but would you kind of treat her in your mind like she has glaucoma already based upon all the risk factors? Yeah, I, you know, I always look at, you know, what has changed in practice? You know, in the past, we've had drops, we've had laser, and we've had traps or tubes. And now we have this beautiful array of minimally invasive glaucoma surgery. So I really feel like our thought is changing there. And then we have the light trial, which many of you know, you know, talk about SLT as first line therapy. And so a lot of us docs are doing SLT before we put patients on drops. And then, you know, I look at what new technology we have. And it's just amazing at the last year how corneal hysteresis has really changed my mindset as far as, you know, um, who I'm worried about progressing or, you know, whom I may be a little bit more apt to treat earlier rather than later. Absolutely. Great points as well. And yeah, hysteresis has really changed my philosophy. And I mean, just example, you know, I had a patient pressure is 25, you know, hysteresis is 10 and a half or 11. I'm going to watch that patient. But if the pressure's pressure hysteresis is like eight, I'm treating that patient regardless I'll, <laughs> because I know that the risk factor is so much higher when you look at the low hysteresis there. So absolutely great points there. What I did, what I forgot to mention to you guys, which kind of adds a little twist to this also, the patient came to you also wanting to get rid of glasses, uh, kind of like a refractive surgery console. She has a diopter of hyperopia. Uh, she's no cataract yet, uh, thankfully. Her angles are actually open to surgery body band, normal P normal TM, one plus TM, uh, but she has dry eye too. She has some artificial tears she's using. Vision says she comes and goes. She has a hard time in reading. She'll blink her eye uh, and she doesn't want to wear glasses. So she came to you with that also in that need to kind of get rid of glasses as well as this all of a sudden, hey, pressure in the upper 20s with a family history of glaucoma. So with that said, and we're going to go through what the audience uh, also has suggested, but Shamik, in your kind of, in your mind, and as you approach this patient, let's say she's in your room, how would you describe her to you and, and, and rather describe kind of what you would do with her and, and what are your goals and, and how would you treat this patient? So for me, a lot depends upon what my relationship with the patient is in the sense that if it's someone that I'm seeing for the first time, part of it is just developing a relationship with that patient to make them understand who I am as a doctor, what I'm trying to provide versus if it's someone who I've been seeing for some time, I've always already established that relationship. Why I bring that up is, a lot of how aggressive I'm going to be is sort of dependent on my mind in terms of how much relationship I have. If I'm seeing this patient for the first time, this patient has this elevated pressure and they don't necessarily know that they have glaucoma per se. They know that they have a family history of glaucoma, but they themselves don't know. So a lot of what I'm going to do is going to depend upon that factor. And in my mind, we've got MIGS, which is fantastic. But in my mind, I always feel like there's sort of a difference in mentality with patients, whether you do something in my mind, whether they're seated in a chair versus is there something that you have to do while they're lying flat. I feel like anytime I have to put the patient flat, that's going to be more aggressive to the patient as opposed to if they're seated in a chair. So in my mind, before I go to something that's a little bit more interventional, like intraocular, things like that, I'll probably want to go ahead and try to um, 
go ahead and see if I can lower the pressure and just kind of discuss the situation and bring them back in before I go into something more aggressive from a refractive surgery perspective. So really the two things that go through my mind are drops versus SLT. And I have now, like Deb mentioned, because of the live trial, I tend to favor laser as opposed to drops just because besides lowering of the pressure, I think the one thing which actually you brought up several times for me, Paul, is the factor that depending upon the response to the SLT, it can sometimes give you some indication in terms of where you feel the resistance or the blockage may be. So that's sort of a, not just a therapeutic tool, but maybe also a diagnostic tool as well. So that's kind of what goes through my head. Love that. I love it. You're absolutely right. That's kind of a fun topic too. That I've been kind of working on as well, which is kind of a, where the, where does SLT work primarily at the level of the TM? So if it doesn't have response, we know that studies show 80% response, 85% response, 15 to 20% don't respond to SLT as well, which could be because of some collapse of the canal or the distal channels might be atrophied. So that could be a reason why. And so that could tell you maybe when you do your MIGS procedure to kind of focus also on the canal or the distal channels as well. Uh, so great points there. But Deb, I want to I want to get your thoughts on this. So, you know, SLT drops, we have drug delivery, we have MIGS. Love to get your thoughts on what you do. And, and if you do decide, let's say SLT is an option and drops potentially, do you give them both options or do you kind of say, this is what I recommend for you? Or how does that work in your practice? Yeah, that's a great, great question. Um, you know, I mean, this patient in front of us, um, she kind of has a trifecta, right? She has dry eye, she has presbyopia, and she has high intraocular pressure. So I'm really looking at this from a standpoint of long-term for her. We want to make sure we get that pressure down and it stays down for her lifetime so she doesn't progress. Um, but also I'm thinking about her dry eye and her options for getting out of reading glasses. So that's a lot in, <laughs> in one appointment. Um, and so how I would approach this, you know, I would definitely address her dry eye and get her started. She's on artificial tears, but, you know, does she need more? Does she need, you know, an immunomodulator, for example, um, to help with the fluctuating vision? Because is that why she's not reading or seeing as well? She still has a little bit of accommodation left. And so, you know, without having a cataract, I really wouldn't want to do cataract surgery at this time um, because we will put her into absolute presbyopia. So then I'm thinking, okay, let's manage the dry eye. Let's help with the fluctuating vision because everything that we do to lower her pressure, we don't want her to blame it on the glaucoma. And so, you know, adding drops can, you know, interfere with that ocular surface. And so in this patient, really what I'm thinking of is SLT. And I do explain that to patients, you know, it's all individual and it's all individual, you know, preference, but, you know, I would explain to her some drops, you know, may make your dryness worse, may make your fluctuating vision worse. We do have other options. And I would just kind of put out there that 80% of patients respond to SLT. It can be repeated and we are in this for the long haul. And so there's things that we do um, that are less conservative or more conservative. And there's things that, that we do that are less conservative depending on the level of your glaucoma. And so I really kind of try to educate the patient right in front of me of options so that they feel like they can choose. But also the word laser can be really scary. And so I explained that this laser does not burn the tissue or it doesn't do any harm or damage to the tissue. And I think they feel a lot more settled when you talk about what the laser is actually doing instead of just the word laser. 
No, that's such a great point. I mean, patients, patient, they, they kind of listen to our confidence level, they listen to how we describe things. And that was a great, great point, Deb. And, and Shamik, for you, I mean, when you describe SLT, are you using the word laser, how, any, any kind of pearls and how you describe and how you get patients to, to adopt that versus drops, let's say? So one thing that patients always worry about is pain. And so I let them know that they may have just a little bit of discomfort while that's going on, but they shouldn't have any real frank pain as that's going on. Um, I basically tell them that what we're doing is we're gently opening up some of the pathways. So as opposed to burning tissue, we're just kind of opening up the resistance. And if they understand, I mean, part of it is just education and making patients understand that there's a problem in their plumbing. I mean, there's some resistance to there. And all we're doing is we're trying to open up that plumbing to allow the fluid to escape. So if you use those type of analogies, patients can a lot of times appreciate what you're talking about, and they're more amenable to using a laser. Because there are, like to Deb's point, a lot of patients gravitate more towards drops versus laser just because they feel that drops are less invasive than the laser. But the reality, to Deb's point, is the drops have its own set of side effects, such as dryness, things of those nature. And once you explain that and say that, well, if it were me, I would lean more towards this option as opposed to the other. I think that's sort of a big change that's happened that's not recently, but a long time back that we tend to be more gravitated towards for a brand new new onset glaucoma to go more on the laser route with SLT as opposed to initiating drops. No, great points. And you know, for me, I, I think that that it, it, right, the confidence level of which you describe it to patients makes such a big difference. And really what a standard of care is based upon your practice. And we have data, as you mentioned, Deb, the SLT light trial, SLT first line compared to latanoprost. What's really interesting about the SLT is kind of, again, we've talked about it a lot in the last couple of years, but just the fact that both SLT and latanoprost work, same, same reduction of IOP, but despite the same reduction of IOP, less medication burden in the SLT group, zero patients progress in being incisional glaucoma surgery over the first three, four years, and less cost to the healthcare industry, better quality of life, and less even progression in terms of visual field as well, if you look at Gus Gaza's work there. So, you know, I think we now see the, the risk of com low, poor compliance, and what does that mean in terms of control of glaucoma? And so, yeah, I think you're, you guys are absolutely right. You know, the drops, but not just dry eye, you know, bone and gland dysfunction, fat pad loss, iris pigmentation, lash growth, you, you know, telangiectatic vessels of the, of the glands. There's so many different re reasons why PGAs and even non-preservative PGAs even uh, can be an issue as well. So I think SLT is a great option for my patients first line. It's become my first line for most patients now. Let me ask you, if, you, if you'd have to guess out of your, let's say you do 10 patients you offer SLT, how many would say yes and how many patients in your practice on average would say, no, I'm gonna go with drops? Deb, what do you think in your practice? We've done a lot of education in the optometric community on this, um, looking at the data. And it's amazing how that education has led to patients actually coming in wanting SLT as first-line therapy. So when a new patient comes into our practice, a lot of times they're referred from an optometrist or um, from uh, another family member, say, um, who, have, who has heard about us. And so, um, you know, I would say that we're up to probably 70% SLT, 30% drop as first-line therapy now. How about you, Shama? Great. I think I have to learn a few things from Deb because my optometrists that refer are not as well-educated. When the patients come in, they, they've educated. I've done a good job on the refractive surgery side of things, but on the glaucoma side, that's fantastic. But I would say that when patients come in, we're probably more like about 50 to 60% will go towards the SLT. The part I love is if patients come in armed thinking that I want laser, 
that makes your job that much easier. Um, whereas from our perspective, a lot of our patients aren't familiar with those choices. And so they're hearing it for the first time. And I'm a strong believer that the longer you can spread out the education process, the more patients are going to go ahead with whatever your recommendation is. So that's kind of where our practice is. Yeah, and I agree. I mean, you know, I think I think it has to do with you know, the understanding of the patient. What, what does the value add for anything we do? Anything we purchase in life, anytime we're asking patients to do something or pay more for something, it's about the value add. Do they understand the value of what they're getting and why? And, and for me, it, it has to do with confidence and what you say. Listen, in my practice, this is what I consider standard of care. If it was me, this is what I would do. And in my quick, cheesy spiel, sorry, guys, but basically I tell my patients, look, your eyes like a water balloon. It has to create water to fill its space to keep the shape, but it has to drain out as well because it makes fluid consistently. Well, your drain is not working. So we're going to use a beam of light that stimulates that drain, releases your own natural enzymes to rejuvenate the drain. It's covered by insurance, takes about a minute to do, and very quick recovery. And so if it, if it doesn't work, we can always try drops if we need to, which is my other option. But I like to do the laser. And I say the word laser, but after I use the word beam of light. And I say it doesn't destroy, doesn't cut, and it can be repeated because it's so gentle to the eye. And so I think that quick... 30 second spiel, the confidence level of which you present it to patients. I think the word rejuvenation has been really, has been helpful in my practice because patients like the word rejuvenation. And I think this is the most natural way, in my opinion, of treating your pressures right now, at least as well. We always have other options if we need to. So I think that's kind of how we, and about 80% or so, I'd say patients can, once you give them the option after that spiel, especially when it's covered by insurance, really helps a lot. <laughs> they, uh, they kind of offer the SLT as well, but not everybody. And so question for you too about drops. I mean, do you guys, and again, not to put you on the spot at any specific company or any specific name brand, but are you guys, do you guys think about these new molecules now? Let's say, you know, Tanaprost and Bunode, and we have, obviously, you know, we have a nitric oxide donating Latanoprost, or we have uh, Ropressa, which is obviously metarsidil. Um, what are you guys' thoughts on those? Do you, are you using them in general in the practice uh, as first lines? Or are they more kind of adjunct medications after primary PGA? Uh, Shamik, I'll start with you first, bud. Yeah, no, um... From my perspective, I, I wish I could go first line to some of these newer drop therapies, but you have to always look at the economic side of things. So in general, latanoprost tends to be my first line just because it works extremely well. It's a generic, so patients don't have to pay that much. So that tends to be what I gravitate towards. And if someone is not well controlled with that, then I'll start looking at these other molecules that are out there. But first line, if they don't go with laser, will be latanoprost for me. How about you, Deb? What are your thoughts on these new molecules, you know, Tanaprost and Bunode, as well as um, as well as Tarsidil? You know, I, I love to use the newer compounded medications, you know, especially a prostaglandin plus a rock inhibitor. I think it's really, really great and it's effective. Um, but again, it comes down to economics. And really, I want to look at, you know, what our target IOP is, you know, for this patient that you're presenting she may be okay at 18 to 20. You know, she has a thinner CCT, so you may want to get her down below 18 or so. Mid-teens would be awesome long-term, um, but I'm always thinking about that too, is on one medication, where do I think that target IOP could go? And then do we need adjunctive therapies? So um, for instance, if we needed a millimeter, a millimeter and a half more reduction, maybe I'm looking at latanoprostine bunad and fighting for that a little bit more. Um, but I'm with Shamik. I usually start with a prostaglandin. Yeah, no, good stuff as well. And I think there's no right or wrong answer as well. I mean, we have, there's a real life issues. Cost is definitely an issue. You know, one of the benefits of a brand name in general, but brand name PGA is that you have consistency of the inactive ingredients. And so there's potentially theoretically less uh, 
potential for fluctuation. And I think for me, what I've noticed with brand names or even with these new molecules is not that everybody with the newer molecule will get a better reduction every single time than a generic latanoprost, not at all. But I do notice that there's some patients we get this wow factor. I think it's what we call the responder rates. What I've noticed is that the responder rates tend to be impressive. And so those, those patients who did not respond well to latanoprost, that's when you get those wow factor patients, put them on one of these new medications or even a brand name PGA, you're like, whoa, where did that come from? And that's kind of where I always tell my colleagues, if you looking back at the initial response to the latanoprost, was it a good response or an average response? If it was not the greatest response, that's the kind of patient we switch them over to a, a brand name or let's say one of these newer molecules. Uh, you can sometimes get that extra oomph, which is kind of neat as well. And the reason I brought that up about the molecules is because from a theoretical perspective, you know, these newer molecules that are working primarily at the level at the, of the TM, which is helping the outflow, helping with, you know, um, the resistance in the TM itself, does that change your philosophy or do you think there's any value to that early on if we can address the TM, not just divert fluid into the uvascular pathway, but if we can open the TM as well, does that change our long-term survival or the natural progression of TM dysgenesis? And does it affect our future SLT or future MIGs? Any thoughts on that just kind of high, high level? Do you think there's some merit to that kind of philosophy or does that play a picture in your role? Deb, what are your thoughts? This episode of GT The Podcast is supported by Alcon. I think there is because I love looking at how the trabecular meshwork is not just standstill. It's kind of a moving structure. And we know even with, you know, some of our uh, medications that we implant into the anterior chamber, like Durista, our biodegradable implants, that, you know, some patients get this beautiful response for like two years when it's only supposed to last for like four to five months. And so what's happening with the remodeling of the trabecular meshwork? And is it because we're lowering that IOP that that trabecular meshwork is um, more active again? And so that's how I think about some of these newer molecules as well um, with drop therapy. Yeah, I mean, Shamik, you know, when, when you have, um, let's say, someone on these medic new medications and like early on, you know, the, the thought is that if we open up the TM, we have, we may potentially remodel and have changed the natural course of their disease of the trabecular meshwork. Um, so, you know, I'm not sure if that's something you think about at all. And if so, is that something that would make you want to start these, these drops earlier? Uh, I'm not sure what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I mean... The, what Deb and you are bringing up, are, I think, are really, really valid points. Um, to be honest, it's not something that hits me right off the get-go. But more I think about it, I mean, it does make sense. And if you can go ahead and the goal with glaucoma, I think, is that it's not just lowering pressure. But if you can alter the course of the disease, that's where you're making a big difference. So if these drugs have the potential of doing that, of course, I don't know if we really have data at this point in time that shows that. But theoretically, it does make sense. And I, I mean, I think if we can alter that, I think there's a lot of value in that. Great, great points. And while I have you on the hot seat right now, uh, you know, Deb mentioned uh, Darista, which is a drug delivery. I, mean, I think it's a hot topic because we see a number of other companies working on their drug delivery platforms. We have IDOS from Glaucos, and Therapeutics has theirs. But right now we have Allergan's Darista, Vimatoprost, sustained release, 10 micrograms in a single pellet that gets delivered into the anterior chamber with a small microscopic 20 kg needle uh, in the office or in the, or in the, in the uh, OR, depending on how you feel and your comfort level. Let me ask you, A, are you doing them? And would this be an option for this patient since it's young, early, get her off the drops, not have to worry about drops if she doesn't want to have SLT? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, so I love using Darista. I think it's a fantastic option um, for someone that wants something that is sort of non-invasive. Um, like I said earlier, the part I love about Darista is that I can do it right in the clinic itself. Patients see it at the sit lamp and it's just a very quick, simple procedure and patients 
love that per se. So in my mind, I feel that it is an option for this individual. Um, again, I would tend to gravitate more towards SLT to start off with as opposed to Duris. So I think number one reason for my thing, again, comes down to economics. I know that SLT is going to be covered for all patients. Durista, the coverage is improving and that's better, but it's something that I always have to look at before I deliver it inside there. So it's just easier for me. It's a path of least resistance. Makes sense. Deb, you know, what, what are your thoughts on, on Durista in this patient? But also, when would you ever, would you ever be, have a situation where you'd use Durista first before SLT? Any situation that happens? Yeah, I, I think for this patient, you know, when we're looking at her age, she doesn't have a cataract her IOP lowered, um, and we're thinking long-term, SLT makes so much sense. But this is a patient that I would be talking about, Darista, if maybe we didn't get to that endpoint that we were looking for. Um, and so I've done plenty of SLTs, you know, followed by Darista. Um, and I think it goes back to what we were talking about, what's happening in the trabecular meshwork. Are we going, going to get some remodeling um, with you know, some of these biodegradable implants and why. So, you know, if she gets a great response from SLT, but she needs a little bit more IOP lowering, you know, Durista could be something, you know, to keep her off of drops because of her dry eye, you know, for a few years, which would be awesome. Um, you know, it's tough with Durista because right now we can only implant one. Um, so we, we can't repeat it like our, you know, retina colleagues, you know, with some of these medications. And so um, I, I think Durista is a wonderful um, first line for someone that may be ready for cataract surgery in the near future. Um, and then you're thinking MIGS. So those are times that I have used Durista as first line therapy is when they come in, they have intracellular pressure that needs to be lowered. Um, they're starting to develop a cataract. You probably are anticipating doing cataract surgery, say within the next year or two. Um, that could be a situation where you're thinking first line. Yeah, great points. And you know, for me, I've, I agree with all you get both of your comments. And you know, for me, Darista has been where I've used first line has been when I, let's say pressure's a little bit higher. Let's say pressure's you know in the 30s. And I want to get the pressure down right away. And I don't want to do SLT in case there's a pressure spike, let's say a pseudoexfoliation patient or pigmentary patient in a nice wide open angle. I'll do a Durista first. It starts working right away. I've had I've seen patients in a week have significant reduction, even less than that. And then I'll do SLT after that. So I'll kind of get the pressures down right away with Durista and then do the SLT after that just to kind of help hedge my bets and pre prevent that spike in case that was going to happen. But I agree. I think SLT for the most part, first line makes a lot of sense. But you know, it's always an option for, for, those, for those patients as well. And you made a great point. I mean, not to geek out too much here, but we do know that there's some remodeling potentially. There's some histopathology studies that Dr. Weinreb has done out in the West Coast showing us that there's an increase in MMP when you put topical or uh, intracameral bimanoprost. But if you look at the expression of metalloproteinase with bimanoprost intracamerally, which is Darista versus topically, a significant difference in how much is expressed. And you have a reduction of the tissue inhibitor of metalloproteinase. So having consistently increased MMP in the eye, which releases macrophages, we're getting that opening of the TM. So indirectly of the uvascular scleral pathway and the TM. So theoretically, that could be one of the reasons why we're seeing that remodeling. So exciting opportunities ahead as well as we get more and more involved with drug delivery. Uh, but you know, going down the line of options, would, would you ever consider, so this is a patient who's a plus one hyperope, 
and she really wanted to come to you actually asking to get rid of glasses. Would anyone ever consider saying, you know what, let's do a lens extraction, right? Do a little mix at the same time, put a couple of stents, this or that, whatever you want to do at the same time, maybe put a extended depth of focus lens or if she has no glaucoma now, would you even feel comfortable putting maybe one of the newer multifocal lenses? Love to hear your thoughts, Shamik, on that since I know you do a lot of cataract refractive and MIGs as well. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so for me, there's been a big change that's happened over the last few years where I feel like our IOLs have improved tremendously. We now have access to trifocal lenses. We've got better extended depth of focus lenses. So I have found a shift in our practice where for individuals that are in there, it used to be I would consider refractive lens extraction more in patients in their 60s or so, but I've gradually worked that way down to in the 50s. So for this particular individual, in my mind, after I would do SLT, see how the pressure is, my next approach to them would be going ahead and discussing a clear lens procedure because I feel like I can accomplish a few things. I mean, not just clear lens, but also doing a mix as well. In my mind, I can go ahead and it's basically the trifecta in the sense that I can correct their distance vision, I can correct their near vision, and I can potentially uh, lower their pressure as well and get them out of drops if they were on drops or potentially lower their pressure further. So I would gravitate much more towards, and especially when they're hyperopic. I don't, whenever someone's hyperopic, I tend to lean much more towards a refractive lens procedure. If someone is myopic, then you have to worry about, okay, well, is there gonna be any issues with the retina or things like that? So I don't jump as quickly, but people who are hyperopic, I love doing refractive lens procedures. Yeah, would you ever do a multifocal lens in a patient like this? So clear, so unless he did, do a, cat, a lens exchange, exchange in this patient, like extraction. Would you put a multifocal in this patient or are you saying, eh, let me have, let me be more safe, quote unquote, for, from a quality of vision contrast and put like a, not say a monofocal or extended at the focus lens? My thought process is totally changing. Like Shamik said, we have newer technology um, that, you know, looks at contrast sensitivity and, you know, discusses basically, you know, the pros and cons, but also you look at quality of life. You know, you look at, is that contrast sensitivity loss going to affect their vision or their quality of how they're seeing? And so, you know, how, how I would approach this case, she has, um, you know, healthy ganglion cells. She has no um, nerve fiber layer loss and she's young. We have the opportunity um, to help her get out of glasses, I'd feel very comfortable with using some of these newer technology IOLs, um, even despite having a high IOP. Um, one thing that I was thinking about as you guys were talking, you know, would this be a candidate for pilocarpine or Vuity? She's hyper. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I mean, look, a hyperopic eye, you, you, she may not, she may, if she has a good distance vision and she, she's a plus one hyperope. So a lot of times with, with beauty, we do find that they have significant improvement in the near vision, no doubt about it. But you know, when they're plus one, it can sometimes help with distance. It sometimes may not get the, the near as much, but it might help them, hey, decrease some of their intermediate issues that they're having, or at least get some of that distance vision to improve, you know, that plus one, it might be having that smaller aperture might help them with that distance prescription as well. So definitely not, you know, not a bad idea to think about that with her. Absolutely. It's, it's a great opportunity, you know, especially to help if you don't want to do surgery and she's not happy saying you have to tell her, no, you can't get off the glasses right now and say, Hey, well, something else that can help you feel, but that might be a bad idea. Great, great point. Absolutely. See, we're going to bring everything all together. Love it. Glaucoma is the center of everything nowadays. It's awesome. When choosing lenses, I think for me, a lot depends upon the level of glaucoma I'm treating in the sense that 
if patient had increased cupping, like let's say 0.75 or something like that, then there's a chance of progression in the future. I'm going to go ahead and shy away from multifocal. But in this particular situation, like Deb mentioned, I would be open to doing a multifocal or an extended depth of field lens. And for me, the way I kind of make that distinction is just discussing about I always talk about optics and optics is always a bunch of trade-offs and trying to determine what trade-off is a patient most willing to deal with. So in my mind, it comes down to, are you willing to deal with some glare and halos at night? And if they say no, then I lean more towards an eat-off lens versus, well, I've got a lens that doesn't have as much glare and halos, but you may not have as much near vision. What is the trade-off you're most willing to deal with? And then let the patient, based upon their answers, will help me direct which type of lens I'd like to go with. That's great, great advice as well. And I think, you know, with, with these glaucoma patients, I do a lot of multifocals and, and extended lenses as well in these patients. And I think for me, it's you're right. What's the severity? Do they have healthy GCC? If they have, even if they have early, let's say, fuel loss or even no fuel loss, but their GCC is wiped out, I'm much more concerned about contrast if their macular is not very healthy. And so then I'll consider doing an EDOF lens, which is not as you know, much of an issue of contrast. But if they have a healthy GCC in a patient like this where we're treating early enough and we haven't, we've established, or even a patient who's, let's say, had glaucoma has established stability for years, I'm much more comfortable offering one of those lenses, multifocal lenses. I'm going to change things one more. I'm going to ask one more question. I'm going to talk about the audience uh, responses. But if I told you this patient was a plus one, like I showed you now, but on Gonio had, wasn't closed, but has some narrowing or the point where maybe you could only see maybe TM in a few quadrants, like a couple of quadrants. So she wasn't closed and she wasn't at risk of a closure soon, but she only had bare TMC in let's say 360 even. Would that change your mind, Deb, on doing a lens extraction or considering just doing SP? If you can still see the TM, but not very well. Yeah, I would definitely be thinking more lens extraction at this point, um, more than what we had previously discussed. You know, she if she had an open angle, we have so many different options, but now you have more of a narrow angle angle, not an ankle closure, but her pressure is 27. And so again, if you don't have a lot of room to work with, you know, I'm thinking clear lens extraction a lot more than I would from the previous case. Yeah, I agree. Shamik, any thoughts on that too? Would you kind of jump right into a clear lens extraction? Even if she wasn't like near angle closure in any way, but you're like, yeah, a little bit on the narrower side. Yeah, no, absolutely. In fact, I've gradually shied more and more aware of doing a laser peripheral iridectomy. If the patient is, if they're young, then I will consider an LPI. But if someone is in their 50s or higher, then definitely go more work on the lens as opposed to doing some type of uh, uh, peripheral iridectomy. So everybody out there, do your gonios. <laughs> That's our, our public service announced PSA, man. Gonio can help. And, and compression gonio, right? If you push on the eye, it looks a little bit like you can't see the TM. Push on the eye, you can say, well, all of a sudden I can see the TM so well. That tells you that patient has some lens issues that, we, you know, they could open up nicely. And that may be all you need to bring that pressure down on that patient who's to up in the 20s. So definitely good stuff. Well, let's kind of talk about now what the audience, this is really fun. So when I look at the audience participation, what they respond to Twitter and on LinkedIn, Pretty interesting. So we have a, a pretty good split actually. And on the Twitter and in the LinkedIn group, both thought drops and SLT were almost equal. More, more SLT, about 41% of respondents in Twitter said SLT, about 41 in, in LinkedIn. The difference was there's a little more page, a little more docs who recommended in the Twitter group a drop. So 40% or so for drops and about 32% in LinkedIn. And what, where the difference was the Twitter people, there was more MIGs and slightly less drug delivery, more drug delivery in LinkedIn. So we have a mix of drops in SLT, about 80% of docs said that one of those two, and then the rest 20% were split between drug delivery 
and or MIGs. So I think they're kind of aligned with what you guys thought. Drops or SLT makes a lot of sense, I think, to the audience. But there's some docs who felt drug delivery or MIGs slash lens extraction would, would be an opportunity for them. About 14%, 13 to 14% felt that a MIGs or lens extraction. Would you guys ever think about doing a MIGs alone? Let's say not even do lens extraction. Let's say this patient we talked about initially, just go in there, do like say canal dilation. And, and what type of MIGs would you do, let's say in a patient? Let's say you went to that MIGs, SLT, you did it, didn't do enough, didn't want to go on drops. Next step is MIGs, not a lens extraction. What type of MIGs would you do, Deb? I think what you guys were talking about earlier with where is the resistance? You know, is it in the trabecular meshwork? Is it in the canal or is it in the aqueous collector channels? And so I've been in these situations where you start with SLT and they're not responding well um, and they have difficulty with drops, whether it's administering them or maybe some allergies to multiple medications. And so I have been in the scenario where, you know, I had a gentleman who was in his early 50s, um, had a clear lens. Um, he was more plano, happy with his vision. And so I went in and did a canaloplasty goniotomy and he's still off drops. And so he responded beautifully. And so you, you think about those cases of he probably had more resistance in kind of that canal or, you know, even herniations of tissue into the aqueous collector channels that we opened up. Yeah. So, I mean, kind of viscodilation to canaloplasty kind of a procedure. Would you do an otomy with this a patient? A shamic, let's say you had to go in there to do a MIGS and not a lens extraction, just go in there and do MIGS. What would you do in terms of MIGS? Would you do a, a canal dilation or something different? No, I will, I'm just like Deb. I would probably would go ahead and do a canal plasty and then maybe do a canal plasty 360. It depends how aggressive you want to be. That's the beauty about some of these devices. You can kind of titrate it depending upon what you feel the patient needs. So if I felt that canal plasty, if I felt that's where the resistance was, then I may just do a canal plasty. Otherwise, I may consider a 180 goniotomy. I'd like to always leave some TM left over if I need that real estate for some other future procedure. But a lot really depends upon, I mean, this individual, I may not gravitate directly to a goniotomy just because I feel like it's you're catching it relatively early. But a lot really comes down to what the patient's goals are. If this patient really wanted to become glasses-free, then I'm going to lean more towards doing some type of thing with the lens and doing that as opposed to just doing a canaloplasty by itself. Yeah, great stuff. And I think I'm, I'm, I'm with you guys. I like to save the TM if I can for later on because you know, these patients have a long life to live, may have, and eventually have a cataract surgery. We can do some stenting at the same time. And who knows in the future, we may have some, you know, and we have some studies are showing us that we might have three stents available. You know, the infinite might be available as a standalone in the future for refractory patients, you know. So who knows? And so I think leaving as much of the TM behind as much as possible. Uh, there's some microgoniotomy devices now that we may want to use if we need to, but uh, I'm a big fan of leaving TM, addressing the kind of, canal and the digital channels as well. And maybe doing an SLT afterwards. Again, let's say I've had some patients where did SLT didn't do as much, did viscodilation, repeated SLT after viscodilation. And guess what? We had a good response for SLT. So opening up that canal can help the distal channels and then you can repeat SLT afterwards. Any last comments, any thoughts on this case before we wrap up, Deb? No, great case. And I love to geek out with you, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. You guys are so much fun to hang out. I love the different perspectives. Uh, Shamik, any thoughts as well? No, I think the beauty about this case is the fact that it's a very simple case, but yet there's so much to think about in terms of what you can do with this injury. And this is something that these type of patients come through our clinics all the time. And it's something that we normally don't think about, but it kind of breaks it down into 
how you want to approach these patients. So that's what I love about this case. Yeah, and sometimes the simple stuff is a fun stuff to talk about because we see it every single day versus those complex, weird cases. Uh, but this is great. Thank you to the audience, too. for We had some really good responses on social media. So thank you to Deb and Shamik. In general, thank you guys. Stay healthy, stay safe. And until next time, we'll see you guys soon. Thanks again. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of GT The Podcast. If you have feedback or topic suggestions, find us on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. And stay tuned for more hot topics in glaucoma care on GT The Podcast.